so we are going to be talking about God's Word today. The text uh, we're going to be in is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's going to take us a few minutes before we get there. But if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to join me in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning a new summer series entitled The Creed. Be considering the doctrines of the Christian faith, uh, Scripture, God, creation, humanity, sin, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, salvation, the church, and future events or last things. And in order to organize our thoughts, we will consider the doctrines through the ordered lens of the Apostles' Creed. So let's take a moment here at the outset to just rehearse the Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. There might be a few words or phrases that stick in your throat as you recite that creed, and that's why we're going to talk about it over the course of the summer weeks. Now, most systematic theologies, and that's really what we're talking about here, a, a very orderly consideration of doctrine or theology, most systematic theologies begin with an introduction, often called a prolegomenon. This is a big theological word. Uh, it literally means the word before or the preface. Uh, this refers to what needs to be said before the task of theology actually begins, before we dive in. So actually today, we're not going to step in and look at any specific parts of the Apostles' Creed today. We're going to provide a foundation. Uh, we're going to um, provide a backdrop for our study. Uh, the Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles. Spoiler alert. Okay. The earliest forms of the creed appeared in the 4th century. It was called the Apostles' Creed because it was intended as a concise summary of the Apostles' teaching. So if you look in Acts chapter 2, uh, of course that's our Pentecost text, right? The establishment of the church. And uh, Acts 2.42 says that among other things, they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching. So this was an attempt, an early attempt to succinctly summarize the message that the apostles had handed down. The Apostles' Creed issues a series of declarations, uh, again, in all of these different doctrinal areas. On what basis can we declare such things to be so bold to say we believe in these things, right? 
How can we really know about God? Uh, God is inaccessible to us. He is holy. He is transcendent. He is above our comprehension. We can't just go knock on his door in any traditional sense. How can we know anything about him or about any of these things with certainty? We only know about God because he has revealed himself to us. And he's done that in a number of different ways. Uh, first of all, through creation. Romans 1, 19 and 20 is a great place to look. There's other places as well, but this is where we see not only did God create, but, uh, but God created in such a way that his fingerprints are on everything that he has created. Complex things do not come into existence by chance. I like to do puzzles, but even a hundred-piece children's puzzle doesn't put itself together. If you see that puzzle completed on a table, you know someone was involved. The universe, the, the immensity and complexity of the universe, even just the complexity of the human body, lets you know, tells us everything we need to know about the existence of God. Conscience is certainly another one of the ways that God has revealed himself to us. We have been hardwired with a conscience. Uh, There's something within us that knows about the existence of God. We have an innate sense of right and wrong. In some sense, God's law is written on our hearts. Romans 2, again, unpacks some of the aspects of the conscience. We don't all agree on the specifics in our world, of course, But people innately know that murder and stealing are wrong, and there's this common longing for justice that is uh, part of of every human heart. Uh, Scripture is probably the most overt way that we know about God, the most overt way that God has revealed himself to us. Creation and conscience are often referred to as general revelation. So they tell us something about God. They tell us about his existence and certain aspects of his character. uh, But they do not provide all that we need to know to, uh, to find salvation. They're not sufficient in that regard. Scripture is special revelation. It is more overt in terms of what it says about God and about us and about salvation. Of course, the fullest expression, the fullest way in which God has revealed himself is through Jesus, his son. Jesus is the word, according to John 1. Loaded terminology. Jesus is the most articulate expression of God. And if we look into Hebrews chapter 1, we would see there that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. In other words, he shares God's essence. We would say Jesus shares God's DNA. When you encounter Jesus, you are encountering God. And so Jesus is certainly one of the fullest ways in which God has chosen to reveal himself. The only main area of doctrine that is not addressed in the Apostles' Creed is the doctrine of Scripture. That's why we want to talk a little bit about a preface, a prolegomena, before we get into the creed itself. And I'm going to suggest to you that Scripture lies 
in the background of the creed. It provides the, the backbone of the creed. It is the source of the creed. It is how we know anything that we know about God. The creed doesn't replace Scripture. Our faith is not based on the Apostles' Creed or any of the other creeds. The creeds are simply concise summaries of biblical teaching. That is why most theologies don't begin talking about God, but talking about the Scriptures. Because Scripture is how we know about God. It's important to say something about Scripture before we actually consider the creeds. Now, uh, I wanted just to have us uh, recite two of the catechism questions from Spurgeon's catechism. You'll notice these are questions two and three. So they're right at the beginning. When we start to think about truth and God's truth, uh, one of the first things we have to talk about is this whole area of Scripture. All right, so I'll ask the question, you provide the answer. What standard has God given to direct us how we may glorify him? What do the scriptures primarily teach? Amen. So, so that's why we're, we're going to be focusing on the Word of God. We're going to eventually get to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. Uh, I do hear at the outset as well, as part of this preface, I want to talk a little bit about the value of the creed. Of course, the Apostles' Creed in particular. Uh, some of you might be a little suspect. Why, why are we spending time on this, right? We... Uh, uh, our, our particular church tradition is not what we would call a confessional tradition. It means we don't strongly tie ourselves to a particular creed. Uh, to be honest, in our tradition, we've not always been strong on church history. Um, creeds have not always played a prominent role in our worship. So why study the Apostles' Creed? So as we, again, just kind of lay some groundwork here and get ourselves thinking on this topic, I want to suggest several values of the creed. Number one, creeds provide a succinct and memorable summary of truth. There is a content to the gospel. Jude says, what has once for all been entrusted to the saints. There is a content here that has to be guarded over. Creeds allow us to learn, to memorize, to remember core gospel truths. The creeds are a distillation of the scriptures. There's your vocabulary word for the day. Rachel Katnaw in first service is always thankful for a vocabulary word. The creeds are a distillation of the scriptures. The boiling it down to the core truths of the word of God. Creeds identify error. Matter of fact, the creeds were first developed in order to counter false teaching. Some false teaching began to crop up, and the church recognized that they would have to speak into that and articulate the truth of God's word in a very clear way. And so this is one of the functions of the creeds. A creeds provide a teaching tool for new believers. The church has often used a pattern of catechesis or religious instruction. New believers were often asked to affirm the lines of the Apostles' Creed or to learn the questions and answers uh, of the catechism, as we did this morning. So it 
provides a helpful way of, of learning and becoming grounded in the truth of God's word. Number four, creeds provide opportunity for the church to collectively confess the faith in worship. I don't just recite the truth of the gospel to myself, but we do it together. And when we do it together, we are reminded of our common faith. We're able to encourage and affirm one another in the faith. Creeds connect us to faithful believers throughout the history of the church. When we recite these words, we stand with those who have gone before us. We affirm what the church has always believed. And we remember that many have paid with their lives in the defense of the biblical truth of the gospel. Creeds allow for true Christian unity. Uh, Christian unity is not simply putting aside our differences and loving Jesus in some ambiguous sense. There are certain things that a person must believe in order to be a Christian. If you don't believe these things, you're not a follower of Christ. So the creeds provide a, a litmus test to know if we have agreement on some key doctrines. This is why uh, you know, we, we can identify the, 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 the Mormon church and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they, they don't hold to what the church has always held to. They're outside the bounds of orthodox Christianity. And the creeds are helpful in, in creating a context for, for unity. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We are not able to say in one message all that we would want to say about the scriptures, as you can imagine, right? So our, our task is a, is a tall one today. I've selected a primary passage this morning uh, from 2 Timothy chapter 3 that lays a great foundation for our understanding of scripture. So I'm going to read it for us and I'm going to make five observations here this morning. 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, but as for you, Paul is writing to Timothy here, okay? So uh, this is Paul's last letter, actually. Uh, his, uh, he knows his time is short, and so he writes with a sense of urgency to his young apprentice, Timothy. Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here's the first thing I want us to notice, that the scriptures have been humanly transmitted or mediated. Timothy is told, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. God could have spoken through a cosmic megaphone or written his words across the sky, but he chose to convey them through human messengers. Paul had actually already made reference to some of the influential people in Timothy's life, specifically his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois. He talks about this in chapter 1. 
The scriptures had been handed down to Timothy as a sacred trust. And I think this is on Paul's mind too. Again, this is his last letter. He knew that his time was short. Paul's leg of the race was almost over. Clearly, he wanted to make sure that Timothy had a good hold on the baton. Note here that Timothy learned these things in his childhood as a child. Children's ministry teachers, parents, do not underestimate the importance of the childhood years in providing training and instruction. I know they might not be paying attention or seem like they're paying attention or able to repeat what you just told them. But those things become deeply rooted in the heart of a child, scripture that is memorized. Jim Seitzman is always telling me this. They had to learn the catechisms and dreaded it all, you know, in his growing up years. But so thankful, those things come back to him. Uh, they're, they're in his toolbox. And so uh, what, a, what a powerful thing here. Timothy didn't just learn all these powerful things to be a pastor from the Apostle Paul. In many ways, he learned what he needed to know in his childhood. Uh, wonderful, wonderful reminder here. I want you to also note that it was not just <clears throat> raw content that was conveyed to Timothy in a classroom setting, but it was conveyed in the context of a relationship. Notice what he says here. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Uh, not only did Timothy know these things, these doctrines, but he knew the life of his mother and the life of his grandmother and the life of the Apostle Paul. It had been lived out before him. And so that was part of the power of the message. I would say that as well. Parents don't. Teachers, uh, your life is as much of an impact as your words. God has determined that his word is to be transmitted by humans, mediated. This whole idea of human agency is a reflection of God's grace. God communicated his message through language and expressions that we could understand. In other words, God chose to not just blast certain truths, but to put it on the bottom shelf for us. That's a wonderful thing. God has, in some sense, accommodated himself to us. John Calvin says that, John, uh, that, that God actually speaks to us in baby talk. He gets down on one knee, and he says some rather simple things but he communicates us in ways to us in ways we can understand. This is how Calvin described it in his Institutes. Such modes of expression, this baby talk, right? Such modes of expression, therefore, do not so much express what kind of being God is as accommodate the knowledge of him to our feebleness. In doing so, he must, of course, stoop far below his proper height. So if you look at aspects of Scripture, you think about this idea of God communicating in very simple terms. That's not a reflection on some limitation on God's part, that he's intellectually not developed. He's giving you what, what you can handle. He's communicating to you 
out of his grace. So uh, this whole idea of human transmission, I think, is, is a wonderful aspect of, of God's uh, sensitivity to our human condition. So if this is true, what does it mean? Number one, we must learn the scriptures and sit under the teaching of the scriptures. We need to go to church and hear the scriptures declared and explained. You will not come to know the scriptures by osmosis. Timothy had to learn them. That requires a certain amount of persistence and effort. So we need to put ourselves in a place to learn the scriptures. Secondly, we have a responsibility to teach the scriptures to others. Paul asks the sobering question in Romans 10, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? If this whole notion of human agency is true, and it is, then that means you and I have a responsibility. How else is your coworker going to hear about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ if you don't tell them? How are your children going to hear about the scriptures if you don't teach them? So the scriptures have been humanly transmitted or mediated. Number two, the scriptures show the way of salvation. The scriptures show the way of salvation. Here it is, verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, here it is, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul writes to Timothy and reminds him of the unique contribution of the Scriptures. The scriptures tell us a lot about a lot of things, and all that it tells us is true. But it is the only place that tells us how we might be saved, how we might come to peace with our Creator, how we might experience the forgiveness of sins. The scripture addresses our problem, draws attention to our problem, the problem of sin. Scripture is like a double-edged sword that pierces to the deepest level, reveals our true condition. But it doesn't leave us in despair. It also points us to the salvation that's been made available through Christ. And it shows us how we can receive this salvation, not through human effort, but through faith, by turning from our sin and humbly casting ourselves on Him. That great passage in John's Gospel where... Jesus had thrown out some hard sayings about his impending death and people began to realize this is not exactly shaping up how they thought and many began to leave Jesus and he turned to his core disciples and said, are you going to leave also? And they said, where else would we go? No one else has the words of eternal life. No one else is offering what you are offering. And there's no other place to find salvation other than through the scriptures. The scriptures are also God-breathed. The word here is a compound word, theonoustos, theo meaning God, and noustos meaning spirit or breath. So scripture is the very breathed out 
words or the utterance or the speech of God. Uh, Of course, how can that be, right? Weren't the scriptures written by people like Moses and Isaiah and Matthew and in this case, Paul? How can we say that Paul wrote these words and then you say it's God's word? Peter unpacks this for us. He says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God wrote his word by means of human personalities, and not just in a mechanical way, but in such a way that the scriptures actually reflect the personality of Paul. Paul's writings are different than the writings of Peter. And yet it's God who is orchestrating this. It's still God's word, not just the words of Paul or Peter. The fact that the Bible is God's speech has several implications. Number one, it is authoritative. These are not suggestions. This is not a novel meant to entertain you. It is not a self-help book to be consulted when you feel a particular need. This is the voice of Almighty God. It's what caused Josiah to tear his clothes and engage in repentance. It also means that It is reliable and trustworthy. The fact that it is God's very speech. It's not some out-of-date textbook that is out of touch with the reality of the 21st century. God doesn't make mistakes. It's impossible for God to lie. God isn't ever confused or lacking in information. He didn't come across some new insights after the original version was produced and have to go back and edit it. It is a timeless word, and it is an inerrant word, without fault. 1978, uh, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy was crafted, and this is just one portion of it. It's a great document. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts and creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. So it's not just inerrant in the sense that it truly tells us about the path of salvation. It's inerrant in all that it says, whether it's human history or aspects of psychology or anthropology, it is true. Now, it is most accurate to say that it is inerrant in its original manuscripts. There have been plenty of human errors, typographical errors along the way. Matter of fact, the the beloved King James Version of the Bible that some are very much attached to actually had five different editions. The 1611, the 1629, the 1638, the, 16, the 1762, and the 1769. As they continued to recognize that things were not translated properly, or again, there were just copyist errors or typographical errors in the text. So we have this aspect of inerrancy at its base level in the original autographs. God gave it to us inerrantly. And then we have this wonderful doctrine of God's preservation of his word, supernaturally preserving his word. The Bible is the most well-attested book in the world. Nearly 6,000 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, over 9,000 manuscripts of multiple other ancient languages, 
Many of these manuscripts were copied in uh, the Byzantine area of Greece and modern-day Turkey. Others were being copied down in Alexandria in North Africa. And, of course, in recent years, there's been discovery in the 20, 20th century of uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls there in Israel. Another thousand manuscripts that were discovered there had been copied. And you take all of these thousands of manuscripts and you overlay them, and they agree in 99% of all that they teach. It's amazing how God has preserved his word. So the scriptures are God-breathed. They're, they're, they're trustworthy. They're, they're, they're true. They're reliable. They're timeless. The scriptures are also profitable. <clears throat> Again, we know God's word is true, that it reflects his moral standards, it's authoritative. But Paul goes further here to say that it is useful, that it is beneficial. Different places in the Scripture we read that Scripture is, is honey, it is bread, it is milk, it is nourishing. In Psalm 19, the passage that Gabe read for us today, we read that the Scriptures refresh. They make wise, they give joy, they provide light in the darkness. We read that in keeping them, there is great reward. The scriptures are, are not just something we feel this stoic duty toward. The scriptures are something that lead us to joy, that help us to live life as it was meant to be lived. Paul touches on us a few specific ways in which they are profitable. The scriptures are profitable. Uh, <clears throat> the scriptures are profitable for teaching. It can get us on track. It helps us become well-established in truth and develop a solid worldview. It is profitable for reproof. It can warn us when we get off-track. It can correct or confront our beliefs. It can confront our behaviors. Uh, it has that function. It's also profitable for correction. It helps us get back on track when we've gotten off track. It doesn't just expose our faults, but helps us to address our faults. And it's profitable for training in righteousness. It can help us stay on track. It gives us the tools we need to live productive and fruitful lives in service to God. On this latter front of training, the role of Scripture in training, ongoing training, I couldn't help but think about my physical therapists over the last 10 years or so. Uh, my back has been really good, but I have these muscle issues, and, you know, boy, when it starts going wrong. One of the things I love about physical therapy is I have some tools in my toolbox, right? When I start to get a little bit of tightness there, I've got this certain exercise that I go to. Not that I'm getting old or anything, mind you, but... But I, I, I've got some, some things that help me stay on track, right, before something progresses or gets worse. And that's part of the role of Scripture, helping us maintain a good regimen to maintain spiritual health. Paul Tripp has written a really helpful resource here entitled, Do You Believe? Uh, touching on these areas of doctrine, and I just love this section here. So he reflected on the, the value of Scripture, how Scripture is profitable. 
I have thought many times, he writes, that I would not know how to live without the wisdom of God's word. I would not know how to be a responsible man without the wisdom of God's word. I would not know how to be a husband, a father, a neighbor, a friend, a member of the body of Christ, a citizen, or a worker without the Bible. Without scripture, I would not know right from wrong. Without the truths of the word, I would not know how to understand and respond to suffering. Without scripture, I would be confused about who I am and what the purpose of my life is. Wow, isn't that, I mean, this is our culture. (laughs) Just an epidemic of confusion about identity. Without my Bible, I would not know about sin or understand true righteousness. Without God's word, I would not know how to handle sex, money, success, power, or acclaim. Without scripture, I would have no understanding of origins and no concept of eternity. Without the word, I would ask people and material things to do for me what they have no power to do. Without God's word, I would have no idea of my need for rescue, reconciliation, and restoration. Without my Bible, I would have no understanding of what it means to love or what it is that I should hate. Apart from God's word, I would have no wise and holy law to follow and no amazing grace to give me hope. That section goes on, just teasing out this aspect of the profitability of Scripture. So, my friends, if you really believe that the Bible is the Word of God, preserved by God for you, wouldn't it be the most valuable, esteemed, treasured, and well-used possession that you have? If I could listen in, watch a month of your life, what would I conclude about the place of God's Word? Thomas White, president of Cedarville University, has been known to say, no Bible, no breakfast. You need food for your soul more than you need food for your body. So the scriptures are profitable. We neglect them. We neglect them to our own hurt. Finally, the scriptures are sufficient. It's worth noting that Paul doesn't speak about the value of the word of God for Timothy specifically or for the pastor of which Timothy was one. Notice how he speaks about this. Verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, literally, this is the word anthropos here, the person of God, it's not a gender term, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul is stating a principle here, not just for Timothy, But for you and I, the scriptures provide the Christian with all that he or she needs. There's actually three words here that speak of sufficiency, right? Complete, equipped, and every. Uh, Sufficiency just oozes from verse 17. Is scripture really sufficient? Does this ancient text really provide us with all that we need for the complexities of life in the 21st century? Challenges of cell phones with 24-7 access to the internet, embryo adoption, rising gas prices, medications for anxiety and depression that certainly weren't available in the first century. Scripture really provides sufficient answers for navigating life in our world. Yes. It gives us everything we need in terms of principles 
and values and instructions and guidelines to be able to navigate life in this world. I'm praying, my friends, that uh, you will come to appreciate the creed over the course of these next few weeks. But I'm praying that you will love the Word of God. That you will understand, that I will understand, that we will understand all that we really have in God's Word. We'll understand it like Josiah, the king of Judah, understood it. That it is the very breathed out, life-giving words of God.